Let's pray together. Lord, 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 thank you for this great passage of Scripture. And now we as your people coming before it ask that you would bless us, allow us to see, allow us to see Jesus together as we read this word, as we consider this word, we ask in his name, amen. Well, the title of the sermon today, The Eyes of the Heart, comes from the book of Ephesians. It comes from a prayer that Paul is offering for the Ephesians. Paul is thankful for the faith that they have. He's thankful for the way that they received the words that were spoken to them, that were proclaimed to them. And he prays that they would continue to benefit from that opening up of their eyes, particularly the enlightening of the eyes of their heart. So they had been opened in the past, and Paul continues to pray that their eyes, the eyes of their heart, would still be open to these great, wonderful truths of the gospel. On the one hand, that phrase, the eyes of the heart, sounds kind of odd to us. On the other hand, there are about a thousand places in Scripture that illumine, pun intended, the meaning of that particular phrase, and certainly the passage that is before us today is one of them. You look at it, and it is admittedly a somewhat enigmatic passage. There are things going on in this passage, questions that you would love to ask, a little bit more information that you'd like to have about it. Why these two disciples? Why, of all the ones that could have been chosen, do we get one named Cleopas? We don't know anything more about him except for what is written right here. And the other one remains unnamed. Why not to I don't, James and John? It's kind of like when, when Jesus calls the shepherds at the beginning of Luke, or when the angels announce to the shepherds uh, the, the coming. We don't know anything about them. Who are they? And we don't know anything here in this passage except for the fact that these two were the ones who got this visitation by Jesus. And, and of course, you, you look at the story, and you kind of go, okay, well, how is it that they didn't recognize Jesus? What, what is going on with that? Why, why couldn't their eyes perceive who he was? And then at that moment of, of recognition, which clearly there's some type of moment that takes place, you kind of want to know, well, what was it? What, what was the thing that triggered? We, we understand the time, but what was the exact thing that triggered this within them? And then, of course, how does Jesus vanish right at that moment, or as I guess as much as we might, might want to say, how does Jesus vanish right at that moment? Why? Why does he vanish then? The minute they recognize him, why disappear from their sight? I, I suppose these are going to be uh, subjects of good conversations in heaven, uh, because I certainly don't have answers to any of the things that I just raised right there. But, but we love it. We, we love it for the mix of the humanity and the divinity that is going on here. We love it for the, the collision, if you will, of realms, the, the collision of the earthly realm with the heavenly realm, and how odd of a mix it is when those two things come together with one another. The, the irony and the humor is great, and we get this perspective as readers. We're in on the story. Okay, the two disciples are not in on it, but we're in on it because right away we read the Lord Jesus approached them. So right at the outset, we know what's going on in this, and so we get to 
kind of laugh along with this story and be amazed as it unfolds in front of us. And then, of course, the great irony of these two disciples looking at Jesus and saying, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know about the things that are going on? Well, of course, and doesn't understand. Well, of course, the irony is, actually, no, I'm the only one who gets it. I'm the only one in the whole city who actually understands what is going on and can explain to you what has just taken place. So thank God that uh, through the Spirit of God, Luke saw fit to include this story for us uh, in, in the end of his gospel in the resurrection accounts. Let's look at it in this order today. Sad hearts, illuminated hearts, and burning hearts. Every one of us knows well what it feels like to have a saddened heart, a crushed spirit. It is a bitter and painful world in which we live in, and we all know what it feels like to be in despair. All sorts of different circumstances come up in our lives that drive us to that, but we all get it. We all understand it. We've all tasted of bitterness. Jesus approaches these men, probably coming up from behind them, walking a little bit quicker than they were walking, and he asks them a question which draws out their sadness. And we read in the passage that they stood still when he asks it of them, and, he looks, and they look sad. Jesus says, okay, what are you guys talking about as you're going along? And the explanation that they give is fairly plain. It's a nice, clear statement of what has taken place, how they're interpreting it, what's going on inside of them. But essentially, you read through this, and here's what we've got. All of their expectations, all of their dreams, all of their longings have been blasted by the cross and buried in the grave forever, as William Hendrickson phrases it like that. They had thought that this Jesus was the one. They had thought that this Jesus would be like Moses, that he, like Moses, would be mighty in deed and in word, but able to deliver like Moses, to take them out of their depression, to take them out of their bondage, to set them free spiritually, to set them free politically, to establish a glorious new kingdom on the earth. But unlike Moses, Jesus didn't deliver, pun intended. In fact, instead of Jesus delivering the people, he himself was delivered up. We thought like Moses, I mean, Moses didn't set up the full kingdom, but he at least got us out, took us across the land. It took a while, but they got us across the land, got us on the edge of crossing over. In fact, our own leadership killed him. And besides this, there are stories going around, stories about an empty tomb, but really no one has seen him, no one has seen his body. We are discouraged, we are depressed, we are deflated, 
We are demoralized. We are undelivered. And we're going home. Enough of the time in Jerusalem. Their hearts and their minds could not fit the suffering and death of Jesus, of the Messiah, into their views of deliverance. The things just didn't go together. They didn't go in the same sentence with one another. And oftentimes, frankly, the same thing can be true of us. We experience the pains of this world, the pains of relationships that are severed, of losses that take place in this world, and we don't see how those things can be consistent with the things that we hear in church about a glorious new kingdom, about joys in Jesus Christ. How can that be consistent with the stuff that goes on in my life? And it can overwhelm us like it overwhelmed them with sadness. Illuminated hearts. Jesus is not particularly tender with these two disciples. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, you two disciples are guilty of selective reading, of selective hearing, of selective seeing, of selective believing. You, you have looked at your scriptures, and you, you looked back in them, and you read the glorious parts, the parts about a coming new kingdom, and you thought, that's great, and you laid hold of those, and you believed those. But what you ignored in Scripture was the road to glory. You got the glory part, you ignored the way. You ignored the ancient path. You ignored the ancient path that will include suffering, and in particular as Jesus relates this, the suffering of the Messiah that has to be. And then, of course, what happens from this point, the, the next few hours of the conversation, is Jesus explaining the Messiah had to suffer and die. It is necessary. This is the word that I've been emphasizing throughout. I mentioned it last week. It'll be two times next week. It must take place in this way. And so Jesus, without opening the Bible, opens the Bible. And he says, let me explain this to you. And we don't know the passages that he used. Now, when we were going through uh, the story of the suffering, death, and crucifixion of Jesus, many times I took us to those passages in the Psalms or in the Minor Prophets or in Isaiah that show specifically the things that are being referred to as each one of these events took place. Jesus probably did some of that, but he also probably did it in a way that laid out the whole story before them. Death was essential. Why? Because Adam and Eve ate of the tree. That was the sentence. And the one who would come would be crushed. And every time somebody got into the promised land, there was a famine. 
And then there's the whole sacrificial system. So he explains to them why it is, how it is that the scriptures are structured in just this way to show that it is absolutely necessary that the Messiah should suffer and die. You, disciples, in your blindness and unbelief have taken the very means of deliverance the suffering and death of Jesus, and called it undeliverance. You've taken the very thing that I came to do for you and said that that's refuse. That's stuff to be thrown away. You want the glory stuff, but forget how I am, in fact, delivering you. You forget the fact that the Messiah had to be delivered up so that you could be delivered out. He delivered up to death so that you can be delivered up to life. So Jesus uses the Word of God, hearing, their hearing of the Word of God to illuminate their hearts and eyes. Get it? They've got, they've got blind eyes. They're not seeing the way that they should see. They've got saddened hearts. They're not believing the way they ought to believe. And the solution to bad heart, bad eyes is, listen, hear. Hear the Word of God explained to you. Now, that's important for us because we're going to have to, in just a moment, we're going to have to lay the experience of these two disciples against our own experience and kind of ask what's similar, what's different in their experience and our experience. So hold on to that for just a moment. We'll come right back to this idea of hearing and the significance of it. But hearing, of course, isn't all that is in this story because they also have dinner together. As they sit, they go into the house, probably one of their dis the, the, the disciples' homes there in Emmaus, and Jesus shifts function. If they're in, remember, he came to them. He's going to go further. They ask him to stay. Asking to stay is something that a host would do. But as they sit around the table, Jesus becomes the host. So Jesus takes the bread as the host, and he blesses the bread, and he breaks the bread, and he distributes the bread to them. And in that moment, something happened. Something happened right at that time that changed them. Let me say something. There, there, there's probably a temptation quickly maybe in your minds right now if, if you're hearing this story for the first time or if you reflect on it to think that maybe this is a Lord's Supper-like moment, like the, the way it describes the, the blessing of the bread, the breaking of the bread. But remember this. These two disciples were not at the Lord's Supper. That was the 12 and Jesus. So that would not have been like memory jogging for them. Like, oh yeah, I remember how he did this just a couple of nights ago at the Lord's Supper. They weren't there. They didn't know about that. So what was it, we ask? What, what, what about this moment caused this transformation to take place in their lives? Two possibilities. One, countless times probably throughout his ministry, they saw Jesus do something like this, right? 
Countless times he probably took the bread, thanked the Lord for it, broke it, and gave it to him. Fairly normal activity. In particular, that phraseology and the way it is described is related to or sounds just like the feeding of the 5,000 and what Jesus did earlier in Luke when that is recorded for us. And if you recall the feeding of the 5,000, remember that it is immediately after that event that Jesus turns to his disciples and says, who do men say that I am? Now, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes his confession. So in other words, a revelatory moment is tied to this feeding of the 5,000 in which Peter then perceives and confesses who Christ is, very similar perhaps to what is going on here, and maybe that was uh, the impetus for them to recognize him. On the other hand, there's another possibility. It is not written here. We're reading it in. We get to ask these guys later uh, about this, but what else is the possibility? Well, it's the obvious one. The obvious one is they're sitting around a table. They've gotten awfully close together, and when he breaks the bread and holds it and gives it to them, the hands are right there, the, the, the pierced hands. And he's going to show the other disciples the, the pierced hands in just later, like, like in two hours or I don't know, like a couple of hours after this. That's going to be a point of emphasis. Look right here. Look at this. And perhaps it is that at that moment, that's what they see are these pierced hands of Jesus but something happens. Something enlightens them. And as soon as they see, as soon as they recognize, all of a sudden the pieces start to come together for them and Jesus vanishes. I swear I would have liked him. <laughs> I would have asked him to stay around just a little bit longer so I could understand what was taking place here. But Jesus vanishes from their sight. The transformation in these two is remarkable, and they reflect together on the conversation that they had on the road and the way that their hearts were burning as he interpreted the scriptures for them. So they've gone from sad hearts to illuminated hearts and burning hearts. What they had lost in the beginning can be said in a word, and I haven't said it yet in the sermon intentionally. What they had lost was hope. Remember the phrase that they use to summarize, we had been hoping that he was the one. They had lost their hope, and it showed. It showed in their faces, in, in their words, in their posture, in the direction of their life. It showed. They're walking away. They're walking home away from this. And this encounter with Jesus causes for them an about face. In fact, I wanted to title the sermon About Face. Because one can only imagine the transformation that is taking place on their faces throughout this day. We all know what it looks like to have a gloomy, sad face, right? You wear it on your face, admittedly. Some people wear it on their face more than other people. But when you're down, generally speaking, people can tell just by looking at your face. It has a certain carriage to it. What do you think their face looked like at the end of that meal? I bet it didn't look the same. 
And it results in an about face, turn around, get going back to the other way, doesn't matter what hour it is, what time it is, whether it's safe or not, we have got to be going. An about face in their disposition, in their countenance, in their understanding, in their insight, in their faith, their hope, their direction, all of it is turned around. And so they head back, they go back to Jerusalem, they're bursting with the news and with the joy, only to find when they get there that the disciples and some of the others are still gathered together or have regathered together, however that took place. And they immediately, as soon as they see these two disciples, tell them, hey, guess what? While you were gone, Peter appeared. I mean, excuse me, Jesus appeared to Peter. We don't know a lot about that visit except that one line that we get in here and likewise in 1 Corinthians 15 that described the appearance to Peter. They aren't finished yet. None of these disciples are finished yet, but they've come a long, long way. Heavy-hearted, depressed, hopeless disciples return, I bet, with a Fred Astaire lightness of feet. You know it, right? In your own life, you know what it feels like to be weighed down by sadness. I mean, I know it's an expression. It's a metaphor. But when you're weighed down by sadness, that's what it feels like. And when you've got news like this, you feel weightless. Now, our own experience, to try and lay our experience, their experience, and learn from this passage, our own experience is, is both similar to these disciples and yet different as well different in this simple fact. Jesus, this wasn't the long-term strategy that Jesus would employ for changing the way we see and the way we believe. Jesus didn't stay on the earth making cameos to everybody who would be one of his faithful. He did it for a very short time, 500, you've got the list, 1 Corinthians 15, the list of the appearances of Jesus. Relatively speaking, it's a, it's a short list. And then he ascended, and he sat down at the right hand of his father. So whatever we might say about the recovery of spiritual sight and the recovery of our own spiritual sight, it's not going to be exactly the way it was for these disciples. We are not going to be sitting in a room with Jesus incarnate, having him break bread in front of us. So it begs a question then, of course, how do, how do we get such eyes? How do we get such a burning heart? Because I sure would like to have it. This text for us provides at least the outline, the foundation of an answer to that question. The first point is this. Hearing is going to replace seeing as the means of illumination. Sounds counterintuitive. I need to see things. I need illumination for that. But hearing will replace seeing as the way that people understand the good news of the gospel. Of course, John, the gospel of John, makes this very clear with relationship to Thomas and statements that Jesus makes after Thomas sees. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. In particular, 
in order to affect spiritual sight and a spiritual transformation of the heart so that hearts believe, it is essential that one hears the word preached and the word taught as that word points to Christ. To use this that Jesus uses to explain and interpret the word. And then to take time and reflect on it. That's what they do, right? With Jesus, with themselves, they're talking about these things. They're not just letting it go away. They're talking about it, reflecting on it, whether or not these things are true. Hearing will replace seeing. Secondly, for the transformation of the eyes of our heart, there has to be a willingness to host. Now work with me here, work with me here for a moment. A willingness to host throughout the Gospel of Luke. I've pointed this out along the way. I know it's been a long journey, but I've pointed this out along the way. It is important how you receive Jesus at table. So many of the conversations that Jesus has in the Gospel of Luke take place around the table, around eating with one another. And remember, when he sends out the 70, the key question is going to be, do they receive you into their homes or not? If they show you hospitality, then I'm at work there. Then, then, then go into that place. If they don't show you hospitality, walk away. So they come to Emmaus, and Jesus acts as if, and no doubt would have, gone further if they don't stop him right at that point. If they don't say, this has been a great conversation, we want to continue it, we want to keep you safe, we don't know what's going on here, but we want to hear more, come into our house and eat with us. It's a critical moment for them. I don't know what would have happened had they let him go, but I get the sense they would have been lost. They had to invite him in at that moment. It was the time. They had to function, in other words, in the exact same way that we saw Abraham function in Genesis chapter 18. That's the model for this. I know you kind of read those two passages and go, Why, how does this passage support that passage? Well, the answer is in these visitors, and how do you receive these visitors who are somewhat known, somewhat unknown? Abraham starts running around. Sarah, get this ready. Servants, get this ready. I'm getting this ready. We've got to serve these people who have come to us. And the same thing is true here. In order to have spiritual sight, eyes of the heart, there comes a time, there comes a time when faith has to turn into action and the invitation to host is extended. Now, I can't think of this passage and not think of the Lord's words written in Revelation 3.20, right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. That's it. It's an invitation to table fellowship, and you have, to, you have to seize it. You have to get hold of this opportunity. They had to do it. 
Third, unmentioned here, but made clear, made clear in the very next section that we will look at next week, made clear in the book of Acts as it continues. And if you're unfamiliar with this, just a quick reminder that Luke is volume one, Acts is volume two, both by Luke, both telling the story. But what is going to be made clear is that underneath of all of this, something else is happening. And the something else that is happening is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what's going on behind the scenes in the hearts of these disciples. Yes, I know, the Holy Spirit hasn't been poured out yet. We'll get to another section of that. That notwithstanding, the Holy Spirit is at work here, just as he was with Old Testament saints. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes in and who, on behalf of God, on behalf of Christ, pries open closed minds, closed consciences, closed hearts, stuffed up ears, blind eyes, and says, open up and function right. And he regenerates them. He regenerates those faculties that have given, been given to us by God so that they do what they're supposed to do, namely allow us to perceive that all good things come from God, namely allow us to perceive that suffering and death and burial are not inconsistent with the glories of Jesus Christ, but are in fact the means to the glory of Jesus Christ and the means of our own glory as well. It is the work of the Holy Spirit, and it is better than the work of an incarnate Jesus, because an incarnate Jesus, even after his resurrection, is limited in his appearances. A poured-out Holy Spirit, not incarnate, is not limited. It's better. It's better. It's better. It doesn't feel that way. I want to be at this dinner. I want to be walking on this road. But what we've got is better. The Spirit of God poured out, working in us. That is what saves us. This is the new transformation that will take place and then will begin to take place in our own lives as well. We won't do what they did. But we can be transformed as they were transformed by hearing the Word of God, by hosting Christ, and by seeing behind that, behind all of that, the working of the Spirit of God. That is how we are transformed. It is how we are saved. It is how we are sustained in this world. Listen, I'm sure you can be sure that every day for these two disciples wasn't like this day. This was a pretty good day. They had burning hearts. I'm sure every day wasn't quite like this one was. They were going to have bad days. They were going to have painful days, days when they got beat up, whether figuratively or days when they got beat up literally. But what sustained their hope was that now they understood the Scriptures. Now they understood that suffering is the way to glory. Christ's in particular, hours after that example. So Paul praying for the Ephesians. The Ephesians had received the Word. They had received the good news of the Gospel, and Paul was glad. He was glad that they had it. He was glad that they were saved. But it didn't stop him from praying that the eyes of their heart 
would be enlightened. Get it? The eyes of their hearts had seen. They had seen the good news of the gospel. They had received it. And so Paul kept praying that that would be the case for them. Why? So they could understand more and more from Jesus. Listen to the way he, he says it. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What does Paul want them to know, the Ephesians to know, with these enlightened eyes and the enlightened hearts? What's he praying for them? That they would have hope. Of what? Of the glorious inheritance. Because Jesus was raised from the dead. Through the word preached, through prayer, through the power of the Spirit sealed to us, may our hearts, in response to this glorious appearance of Jesus and the word preached about this glorious presence of Jesus, and the power of the Spirit at work, may it work in us to take sad hearts and illuminate them, and in illuminating them, to cause them to burn a sustained hope until Jesus returns. Hold on to hope, brothers and sisters. Let's pray.